Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Terry A. McMurtry-Chubb about her book, Race Unequals, Overseer Contracts, White Masculinities, and the Formation of Managerial Identity in the Plantation Economy, published by Lexington Books in 2021. Professor McMurtry Chubb is a professor of law and associate dean of research and faculty development at the University of Illinois Chicago Law School. Race Unequals looks at the complex relationship between enslavers and overseers in order to explore the ways in which white, the white South was not a monolithic identity, but one in which white male identity was constantly created, created contested, and compromised. By examining contracts, public law, and plantation management, Professor McMurtry Chubb shows how the plantation was not only created, uh, not only created one of the nation's first class of managerial people, but how this system stymied upward mobility, created and controlled social boundaries, and furthered white supremacy. Professor McMurtry Chubb, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So to get our listeners uh, started, can you tell them how you came to this topic, why you decided to study it? A happy accident, actually. I was a new graduate student who had outlined what I thought would be my MA thesis. I can't even think about uh, what the topic of the thesis was supposed to be now. Um, And then during my trips to the archives, I was searching through Kenneth Stamp's records of Southern antebellum plantations. And I came across contracts between overseers and plantation owners and slavers. I was a law student at the same time I was in graduate school. And at this time, I had one year of contract law under my belt. Um, I was seeing contract terms that just didn't look right to me, terms about morality and access to enslaved individuals. These terms challenged me to think about the social purpose of contracts and contract law, um, how contract law enshrines societal relationships, um, how contract law sets them, and about whiteness and maleness in ways I had not previously thought about. So for our listeners who are less familiar with this history, um, the main sort of subject of your book is the overseer. And so can you explain what an overseer is um, and what their role within slavery and society writ large was? Well, overseers were white men with some degree of literacy and numeracy. So an ability to, you know, add, keep the books, keep track of of enslaved persons' productivity, who were the managers of enslaved persons on large plantations. They generally were tasked with ensuring the labor productivity of the enslaved, measuring labor output, and reporting these tasks formally through templates provided in plantation management manuals and regular correspondence with plantation owners. Uh, because overseers and managers of large plantations, I'm sorry, because overseers were managers of large plantations, plantations with 20 or more enslaved persons, they were often the principal persons of authority on site. And so when looking at these contracts between um, overseers and the enslavers that employed them, um, one of the things that you look at is basically just how effective these contracts were um, for overseers themselves and actually getting payments, um, being that that is sort of the main function uh, or one of the main functions of a contract. Um, One would think that this would be sort of 
um, a given that if they have if they've signed a contract with their employer, they're going to get wages. And yet you show that this is not necessarily the case. And so how effective were these contracts? Um, and even more so when we talk, think about them uh, overseers actually being able to get their payment at all, what was the sort of ability of them to sort of amass any sort of pool of money? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, enslavers were not equitable to anyone on the plantation, least of all uh, the enslaved and certainly not overseers. And so the vast amount of litigation that we see between overseers and planners over contract disputes, particularly wage disputes, is very telling. So were, the, were, there, uh, were these contracts effective? <laughs> no, not effective at all uh, for overseers to amass any type of wealth or pool of money. Uh, overseers were constantly in dispute about their wages with plantation owners uh, who paid them partial wages or carried their wages for the previous year onto the next year's contract. So it wasn't uncommon in my research for me to see uh, on plantations where they employed the same overseer year after year after year that you would see, you know, for one year, they would have a set amount of wages that they agreed to be paid for the end of the year. And then that same amount of wages being carried and added to the next agreed amount for the year, for the next year. And it went on and on and on. Um, and so I also see correspondence between the overseers and the plantation owners where the overseers would get fed up. And right before they quit, they'd write the letter that we all dreamed that we could write to our employer before we quit. And they would tell them exactly why they were quitting. And sometimes uh, the plantation owner would kind of settle up with maybe uh, the offering of an enslaved individual. And other times the overseers took the plantation owners to court. So this inconsistent payment of wages made it really difficult for overseers to save money to buy either land or enslaved persons, both necessary to amass wealth in the plantation economy. And I think that's a pretty important aspect of this history because, you know, overseers are, you know, not necessarily these, you know, very sort of poor, destitute people to begin with who are just like, okay, doing that. They're not subsistence farmers per se or anything like that. Um, you know, we would usually consider these people to some people who are interested in upward mobility, which in uh, slave a slave society like the South means um, amassing a certain amount of wealth to be able to buy enslaved, enslaved people and sort of continue buying them and continue amass, amassing wealth. And yet, as you show, they're not able to even sort of get their foot in the door just by being able to actually get payment for the job they're doing. Yeah. And that's by design, Derek. That's a, it was very calculated on, on the behalf of the planner class to never allow them to be a member of the planner class. And so one of the things that you look at as well in this is, you know, it's in the title is just sort of um, creation of a managerial identity and system within this plantation economy. And part of that is the, quote, pushing system, this um, part of the sort of uh, way labor is, is uh, managed in the slave uh, within um, slavery and then in the South. And so. For our listeners who might not be familiar with that, what is the pushing system itself and what is the overseer's role within it? And why is the overseer's role within the pushing system even important for, you know, your purposes of this study, but for just the larger history of this relationship between enslavers and overseers? 
Well, the pushing system is how historian Edward Baptist in The Half Has Never Been Told describes the system of torture used to ensure enslaved persons' productivity. So let's unpack that for a moment. Essentially, overseers, sometimes with the help of drivers, so drivers were a group of enslaved persons uh, given a quasi-management role, uh, threatened violence, and enacted it as they walked or rode the rows of cotton and they were monitoring enslaved persons' progress. So a man, uh, you know, imagine uh, enslaved uh, persons working out in the field and uh, an overseer walking down the rows of cotton or riding their horse down the rows of cotton with the whip and gun at the ready. Um, and this was a, a threat, right? Uh, you knew it was going to happen if you didn't meet the quota for the day. The quota was set... Uh, by the by, the enslaved person who had the most productivity, the highest productivity rate, and so if the other enslaved persons fell below that productivity rate, again they were uh, tortured into being as productive, and this included children as well. So you know when I in my in the records that I studied, uh, I saw you know the the productivity rates for picking cotton for children, children who were eight, nine, ten uh, in the plantation. So this that was especially heartbreaking. But the pace for the rest of the enslaved persons was set by the most productive among them, and as I mentioned, uh, this pace was solidified by the overseer's whipping gun. So it is an important the pushing system is an important aspect of the overseer and slave relationship because it situates torture as a key aspect of plantation management, but transfers the mechanics of torture to overseers instead of plantation owners and enslavers. And so this essentially acts to preserve the reputation of enslavers as benevolent and patriarchal figures on the plantation and allow them to maintain the fiction of enslavement as a benign, beneficial process. So it allowed these enslavers some distance from the mechanics of how they made their money. And you know, while uh, our middle managers and executive officers in today's corporations are not walking around with a whip and a gun, certainly aspects of surveillance and monitoring and benefits and punishments doled out in employment relationships have their root here on the plantation. And so one of the sort of important aspects of this as you're talking about this is that for enslavers, the way this pushing system works and crucially the role of overseers in it, it allows enslavers a, a certain amount of sort of plausible deniability in a way um, and the ability to both for themselves and for the outside world, almost more importantly, um, continue to create this sort of fantasy of slavery being, you know, as you said, sort of benevolent um, and kind. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and the law was complicit, both uh, public and private law were complicit in maintaining this fiction. And so you have this web of private law, this statutory, you know, statutory provisions in uh, the, the slave states where you know, the legislators are like, you know, you, slave, enslaved people are not allowed to be abused, essentially. Slave, enslaved persons must have a minimum level of nutrition. Enslaved persons must be taken care of. And then all the while you have, 
you know, correspondence between overseers and planters in which the overseers are carefully negotiating uh, their job security, which is dependent upon enslaved productivity, which is dependent upon um, actually pushing torture, <laughs> right? Torturing enslaved individuals just to the extent that it's legally admissible. So you, you've got the, or legally per- permissible, excuse me, legally permissible. So what you have essentially is, you know, in these court cases, at these rare court cases where, um, Planters are are suing overseers for actually this comes up in wage disputes, believe it or not, where there would be a wage dispute between an overseer and a planter. And the planter would say, yeah, but this overseer wasn't a really skillful manager because he abused my slaves. But understanding that the enslaved individual's productivity was the result of the um the the wealth of the cotton crop for that year. So in these cases, the plantation owner would also say things like, well, yes, this was an exceptional year for cotton, but this plantation uh, overseer was not a uh, efficient or effective manager. So you see that tension play out in the drama of the courtroom. And you also see it play out in the drama of the legislature where you have uh people from the planter class, men from the planter class who are making these laws to shield them and protect their reputation, both in plantation society as benevolent uh, fathers for their plantations, but also in the in the whole of the plantation economy. What does this economy mean um, for our society? It's not harmful, right? That's the fiction that they're keeping up. And so along with the, you know, the creation of this managerial system and the various aspects that go along with that, one of the other things that you look at when it comes to the relationship between uh, overseers and enslavers, and particularly um, how that sort of intersects with contracts, is the way that this both affected sort of the... um, affected both the class and gender relations of both of these groups of people. And so what's going on um, with that sort of relationship between class and gender? um, And how do these contracts, you know, act as a form of social control when it, you know, affects both of these things? As you mentioned, overseers were the first managerial class of workers in the United States. Um, And as white men in the plantation economy, they were in a different position than uh, Africans who would be enslaved in that they had an ability to offer their labor freely in the marketplace, right? Whereas enslaved Africans did not have that ability. And they also had certain rights of whiteness, namely access to land and enslaved labor. But the price of admission into the overseer class was a formal contract of employment between overseers and plantation owners uh, or or planter enslavers. Overseers were free to negotiate the terms of their labor via employment contracts, but plantation owners, enslavers, set the terms in ways that limited how much access to land and enslaved persons overseers could have. So the way that they crafted these contracts modified how much whiteness and how much maleness these particular white men, overseers, had access to. So for example, 
overseers were allowed to access enslaved individuals on plantations in limited ways spelled out in their contracts. Um, So an enslaved woman could only be used to cook or clean, let's say, while enslavers were allowed to use enslaved women for whatever purposes they wished. This, again, this fiction was maintained about the use of enslaved individuals through um, either formal plantation management manuals or uh, manuals that the these makeshift manuals that the planters wrote themselves. So I'm thinking of one in particular in which the planter is, is spelling out uh, pages and pages of how the overseer is to interact with the enslaved on the plantation for the purposes of administering to their health. And so, you know, there's a prominent uh, portion in this particular makeshift manual in which the planter says, hey, um, you know what, you're not supposed to be having sex with enslaved women. This is completely prohibited and gives all of these reasons. All the while, this planter is fathering children with a variety of enslaved women. So again, limiting access to uh, enslaved individuals. And this is particularly acute in the area of labor competition. So even if an overseer had an enslaved individual, they were not permitted to bring that enslaved individual uh into, onto the plantation when they worked as overseer. So they had to give that person up or give that person to a family member or, or sell that person. Um, because planners were really concerned with, I don't want you and your spare time trying to compete with my labor on my plantations. Another example is that overseers were prohibited from entertaining in their quarters on the plantation, uh, while enslavers were expected to entertain at the plantation house as part of their role as the benevolent fathers of the towns where their plantations sat. So uh, there's there are all of these contractual provisions about who's allowed to visit the overseer or uh Planners are particularly concerned with overseers drinking, um, again, which is like almost this um, this parody of who these white men are, these overseers are. And you'll see this throughout the literature of the time period where overseers are described as these awful, nefarious, um, morally debased people who are drinkers, who are loud, boisterous, prone to fighting. And all of these attributes um, given to these white men distinguish them distinctly from the planter class. These are just a few examples, um, and I elaborate, obviously, extensively on these in the book. And one of the things that you've mentioned before and that was sort of like intersexual, what you were just talking about, particularly when it comes to, you know, drinking and the sort of excess of alcohol that um, you see as being portrayed, at least in um, writings on overseers, is that uh, these contracts have morality clauses in them. Uh, And so how did morality play a part in both um, contracts between enslavers and overseers and how enslavers uh, expressed control over overseers? Well, overseers were the mechanics of torture on plantations. They were associated with the attributes of a debased class. So they were the, the people who literally got their hands dirty. The planter you know, is saying to the the overseer in many ways, both explicitly and implicitly through contract terms, through the social mores that are set by the contract terms, um, that 
ultimately your goal is to make my plantation a going financial concern. Uh, and so you need to do that in, in in whatever way you can. Wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm not going to be here because I'm going to be on my other plantations. <laughs> and so while you're managing my plantation and while you are corresponding with me about your management and while you're filling out all of these templates about plantation management, we both know how you're getting my cotton picked on the plantation, right? So that's the first thing that the planters, you know, and so you often see, I I often think about overseers in my head as like middle managers because enslaved individuals, and we get this through uh, the literature beginning with Eugene Genovese, right? And Roll Jordan Roll, where where, uh, enslaved people are very well aware that the overseers are not of the same class of white men, do not have the same benefits of whiteness as the plantation owner. And so they're making their their uh, pleas known to the plantation owner. And in turn, we see this play out in the overseers and the planters and conflicts between the two. So these negative reputations of overseers enforced enslaver reputations as positive an aspect that infused the contractual employment relationship between the two. So, for example, overseers, as you mentioned, Derek, had to agree to extensive morality clauses in their contracts with planters, while planters' morality was assumed. Um, And the web of private law, contracts, public law, legislation, and litigation in the courts also preserved the societal view of the two uh, which had definite material consequences, consequences for how both were allowed to move through society and attain wealth or not attain wealth uh, in the case of overseers. And I think one of the sort of really important aspects to remember about all of this is that, you know, you're looking at the relationship between these overseers and the people who are employing them, the contracts that they are using, the wages that are agreed upon, the sort of system at play. Um, But all of this is sort of, you know, just words on paper, agreements between people until it can be enforced, as you've said um, multiple times throughout this uh, podcast, um, in courts. And there's obviously, you know, you're able to uh, write this book because you have a plethora of sources um, dealing with, you know, court cases over these things like the more out that involve morality clauses that involve, um, back wages, these sorts of things. And so I think it's really important for people who don't know much about this history to understand that, you know, people in America throughout American history period, but especially when it comes to uh, the slaveholding South, people were very uh, litigious. They very much went to court all the time. And that's really like the only way that this system um, actually gets to uh, last and be as in as um, effective as it is because there's an enforcement mechanism that you're able to sort of tease out all of these different aspects from. Yeah. It's fascinating actually to, to look at the, the statutory um, history, to look at, you know, the legislative history of these acts and how they evolved um, and how they kept pace with the need for more and more enslaved labor, right? So as we go through 
the 1840s and the 1850s, you, you see more robust legislation and, and lots more uh, litigation um, and extremely litigious people. You are you are correct. I mean, it, it is shocking. Um, and I had I actually had to sort through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of court cases to find the ones specific to uh, the conversation that I was wanting to have about about contracts. But there are so much more, so many more um, aspects of litigation that that you know work around the edges of the research that I did for race unequals. Um, but you know, just reading the court cases, reading the judicial opinions, you can, if you read between the lines, you can really see. And sometimes you don't have to read between the lines. Uh, the way that the judges talk about the parties, the benefit of the doubt that the judges give to the parties, how the judges talk about the roles of these white men in society. In particular, what's striking is that judges are very clear about the line between management and ultimate control and authority. And so while plantation owners are able to transfer a bit of their authority to plantation uh, to plantation overseers, the courts are very clear that the plantation owner is, you know, the buck stops with them, um, which kind of leaves the overseer in this very nebulous position where, again, there's all these understandings that are not really written explicitly about how to do this job um, in ways that are detrimental, you know, to uh, overseers in terms of their goals for upward mobility and devastating to the to the populations of enslaved people in that it, it codifies, it makes legal uh, their treatment and in a way that we have silenced in our discussion of the plantation. So while, you know, we we don't really talk about management and torture going hand in hand, and this is exactly uh, the main goal of the overseer, to get the productivity out of the enslaved workforce in a way that maintains the fiction of what the plantation economy is and what planters as white men are in the plantation economy. And so we have this great book in front of us, and I would encourage all of our listeners to become readers and go out and get the book for themselves. Once again, Race Unequals, Overseer Contracts, White Masculinities, and the Formation of Managerial Identity in the Plantation Economy. And so we have this in front of us. What can we expect from you in the future? And, you know, this book just came out not long ago. So if you want to say that you are taking a much needed break, that is completely okay. Oh, would that were so. So on the day Race Unequals was released, I turned in another book manuscript, uh, which is on integrating diversity, equity and inclusion into the core law school curriculum. And ironically, that book hit the market today. <laughs> um, and I am working on another book manuscript with two co-authors on critical rhetoric, which challenges legal practitioners' notions of the law and interpretive frameworks as neutral and normative. Well, I'm sure we're going to have to have you right back onto the program to talk about all of that in the future. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today and telling us about your book. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. Two years of almost daily archival research and about 15 years later, I am thrilled that Race Unequals is on the market.